0: Cora Blake was certainly not planning on going to Paris that spring. Or ever in her lifetime. She was the librarian in a small town on the tip of an island off the coast of Maine. Which didn't mean she'd never traveled. She did spend two years at Colby College in Waterville, and visited family in Portland, went to Arizona once, and if you counted yachting, knew most of the New England coast. Her mother had been the great adventurer married to a sea captain who'd taken her all around the world. Cora was born off the coast of Rio de Janeiro, which might account for her venturesome spirit, but now she roamed only in books. Summer people from North Carolina and Boston would stop by the quaint old library building to chat and wonder how she could stand to live in such a tiny place with those terrible winters. "'I have everything I want right on the island,' she'd say." We're so off the beaten path, you've got to be satisfied with the way it is. Since the crash of 29, the county had stopped paying her salary, but Cora kept on librarying anyway, two days and one morning a week, for free. She did it for the sociability and out of duty to her readers, but she was as hard up for cash as anybody. That's why when the whistle started blowing at the break of dawn out at Healy's Cannery, It sounded to Cora Blake like Gabriel himself swinging out on the horn. It was 5 a.m. in the pit of February. The cannery had been silent for more than two weeks, but now the whistle was loud and clear, piercing the bleed of the foghorn. Wake up, it shrilled, there's work. And throughout the village, women rose up out of warm beds, wondering how much work there would be and how long they might be gone doing it. The length of the job depended on the catch. Clams, as long as they're watered down at night, will be fine until the next day. But fish has to be put up right away or it will spoil. They could end up packing 24 hours straight, which nobody would moan about at a time when the Great Depression had taken away so many jobs. But they had just 30 minutes to dress and put out food for the family before the second whistle started up, scolding them to get out the door. By then, the worker transportation bus would be leaving from in front of the post office, and if you missed it, well, good night and good luck. In the top bedroom of one of the old stonecutter's cottages facing the harbor, mustard yellow with squares of windows like a child would draw, Cora was rapidly calculating four meals ahead. Life had changed since she'd left Tides End Farm, a hundred acres that had been in the family since 1759. Five years ago, her mother Luella, her older sister Avis, had passed from cholera, and Cora moved to town in order to look after her nieces, Sarah, fourteen, Laura, twelve, and Kathleen, ten. Now the farm lay derelict and far from her mind. There were the three girls plus her brother-in-law to cook for, and all she had in quantity was beans. Most people can't tell the difference between one bean and another. Most don't give a hoot. Down east, anyway, a lot of folks were making it through hard times on the Marifax beans supplied by the federal government. Chewy, amber-colored little things that prudent types cooked only with salt. Cora had gone up to the city and gotten some, along with margarine you had to mix by hand with yellow coloring, so it didn't look like dental wax. They still had turnips and squash in the cellar haymow. She woke Sarah, who was sprawled beside her in a dead pile under the quilts, and gave her the lowdown. Aunt Cora was going on a pay streak, and as the oldest, Sarah would be in charge of the household, most of which was laid up with the flu. Sarah didn't move. She wasn't sick, but her eyes remained shut on principle. Can I make biscuits? she asked. I don't want to see a speck of wasted flour when I get home, Cora warned, and no cigarettes. Don't think I won't know because I can smell them on you. The girl uttered something befitting a half-asleep adolescent, but Cora was already across the frigid bedroom. It was impossible to keep warm without coal. Her brother-in-law, big old Uncle Percy, had started cutting wood off someone else's parcel. But what could you do? Rags stuffed under the doors did nothing to stop the glacial drafts that swept down from Nova Scotia. She looked to the window to gauge the day. The glass was scrawled with the roseate frost of dawn. Outside, the snow was fresh, and it was well below freezing, but Cora was cheered to see there would be sun. She pulled a pair of large woolen stockings from the cedar chest. They had been patched up so often they had acquired the combined character of the three generations who had worn them, which meant they belonged to nobody and were seen by Cora not with sentiment but as a handy something to be pulled on top of her shoes, followed by galoshes that had been re-sewn where the rubber split.